Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. I've got a very interesting person, maybe one of the most interesting people you could possibly imagine having on a podcast. I really think that's true because Andy No is one of the most important figures in journalism in terms of putting a focus on what the left wing uh, is doing in terms of violence in this country. Uh, he has paid a heavy price for it. He is basically a an exile from his own country. He's um, living in the UK now because of his safety. Um, he's written a lot of interesting things. He has filmed a lot of interesting things. He's incredibly controversial. If you read his Wikipedia talk page, you see, even on Wikipedia, people don't know what to do with him. I know what to do with him, which is to always be friendly, always be nice, and to get him on Coleman Nation. Uh, and finally, we did. And, and, and the fact that it took so long is really more my fault than anything else. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Ron. I've been looking forward to this. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. So I mentioned that you are uh, are speaking to us are you in are you in london is, is that what i recall um i am in england at the moment although i do actually kind of travel around a little bit um uh i can't really go into details for security reasons that um i'm sure your your listeners can probably appreciate and understand but um i am in in the uk a lot and also um in other countries I've uh, basically have been driven from most urban areas in the United States. I've um, have been beaten several times in Portland, um, where I'm from, but I've also have been recognized and aggressively confronted, unfortunately, in, in other um, cities in the U.S. And I think, um, well, not I think, I've, I live uh, the, this is the price I pay for my reporting on the violent far left in the United States. And I'm, I'm rather surprised that you feel safe in the UK. Now you, I, I'm, I hope that you are safe in the UK, because I wouldn't think of that necessarily as a place where the forces that are responsible for the threats to your safety would also be that would not would not have some reach. Yes, that's a pretty uh, apt observation. Um, yes, there's a lot of crossover in the political currents between the US and the UK. The, the UK, unfortunately, has taken in a lot of the lies and propaganda and disinformation from um, BLM and far left uh, militants about various claims about so-called systemic uh, racism, et cetera. 
And even though that exists here, it exists in a milder form. The politics here in general are more mild compared to the United States. There's less polarization here. And also crucially, um, because the, uh, the criminal justice system, the courts here are much, much older than the US, it seems to be less vulnerable to some of the exploits that we're seeing in the US. Um, the Crown Prosecution, which I guess would be sort of the equivalent to prosecutors' offices, they don't have this thing where elected officials can come in and with a very radical agenda, as we've seen in the US, like in Portland and San Diego, Philadelphia, and I can go on and on, LA. San Francisco, if I didn't say that already. Um, so it's different. Yes, there's left-wing militancy here, but it, there are CC camera, CCTV cameras everywhere. I think London um, and other British cities have like per capita, probably the most surveillance cameras like anywhere in the world. So that's carrying out- amazing. Carrying out street-level <clears throat> violence without being uh, caught eventually is actually really hard. And uh, the police budgets here uh, are huge and massive, and they don't have some of the um, budget or resource uh, issues that American cities are experiencing. People are still um, signing up to be police officers, those who are uh, either retire or or quit, they're easily they're quickly replaced with new recruits. That's not the same in the US. So it's just different. And without all that said, it's not entirely a rosy picture too here. Um, the UK has a, a whole different set of challenges in regards to, uh, in my view, uh, Islamic uh, violent extremism. They've had a number of terrorist attacks. Uh, it's ebbed a little bit uh, all across the world, actually, because IS has been denied a space to operate um, in Iraq. But the ideology is very much there. And if you go to certain um, migrant communities uh, all across England, you will see that these are really quite parallel societies where there is religious extremism and a separatist mindset that leads some uh, to be easily radicalized and radicalized to take up arms and to become terrorists. Right. I mean, I, I know that there are, you know, there's been the, the recent notorious sort of second wave of revelations about how uh, police were protecting a, a ring of pedophiles because they didn't want to be accused of being culturally insensitive because that pedophile ring was Asian. As an Asian, uh, you know that they don't mean you. Um, yes. They were Muslims from Pakistan. And I, I'm a little bit confused, actually, by that story, because I thought that this had, that these revelations had come out years ago. What is it, what has happened that has made this, gotten this into the news again? So you're talking about the phenomena of the Muslim grooming gangs. I'm, I'm right. just going to say it. Uh, yep. The the establishment press here will use euphemisms, right? Instead of saying Muslim, they'll say Asian because, you know, entire continent is huge. It's more vague. It's actually meant to deflect and confuse the public a bit. So you have in the, the middle of England and in, in the north, 
certain um, smaller cities where very large waves of um, um, mi migration ha has come, particularly from um, uh, Pakistan uh, and Bangladesh. And here, as I mentioned a moment ago, they do live in a sort of parallel society in a way that's not entirely their fault. Um, because of the history of the colonial empire and the British mindset when it comes to colonialism and the legacy after that is a uh, belief and philosophy in multiculturalism. So separatism is actually encouraged. Um, they explicit like various institutions that are encouraging of a separatist sort of identity, an identity that is, I don't know, Muslim, let's say first, or um, brown, something, these can get funding from the state, and some of them have been tied to religious extremism. So in, in these communities, you've had now for decades, um, men who are uh, serially grooming underage white girls and young women um, to be essentially sex slaves are given drugs they are passed around from brother to brother to cousin and the women are just abused they all in the in the white women are coming from very poor working class backgrounds and um i mean the really big scandal is that the um law local law enforcement has over and over repeatedly failed these girls when cases were brought to police departments it was really actually brushed aside and seen as a a um a small like like a anecdote just a, a single incident rather than actually part of a larger phenomenon where thousands of girls and young women were systematically abused and groomed and we're seeing it in the news again now, not because there's been new grooming gangs that have been uncovered, but rather uh, we're seeing the results of the public inquiries that have happened in various places. Public inquiries are, um, uh, are um, investigations that uh, are then, the findings are then made public. So the public is entitled to know how did this happen in this city or that city? and who were the key actors and who were the decision makers that allowed for such a colossal failure in the protection of children to go on for so long. And as these findings uh, have been released, we're seeing that systematically, police often were afraid to respond to these communities out of the fear of being accused of being racist or anti-Muslim uh, or Islamophobic. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, across the Atlantic in the United States, I think we're, viewing some, we're seeing something somewhat analogous to that in the form of um, Black Americans who violently victimize East Asian elderly people in places like San Francisco or Oakland or New York. People see the videos, they see what the NYPD puts out for wanted suspects. They see the families of these victims who, who go on television and show these images of their elderly relatives who were beaten, brutalized, and sometimes even killed. And the suspects over and over are disproportionately Black. 
And that's a very, very uncomfortable reality for law enforcement and for Democrat politicians. So their response is to look the other way. And also the press has been quite complicit in this as well. You know, in any time, even when there was no racial angle to a law enforcement um, involved shooting, they would bring up the race of the person who was shot as well as the officers who were involved. But they don't apply that same type of let's name the race of everyone involved in these cases where the suspects are black. Okay, so Andy, you're telling me you're making a very powerful analogy, between uh, comparison between the 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 Asian or Pakistani groom, grooming gangs uh, or Muslim grooming gangs in the UK and the way politicians in the United States, especially Democrat, but not exclusively black um, uh, Democratic politicians in the US and the press have made it have made a point of not confronting the fact that a an obvious an obviously disproportionate amount of attacks on East Asians and Jews in New York mm -hmm. are being uh, carried out by by blacks. Yes, I'm so glad you actually brought in the uh, the Jewish victims as well. There are certain areas of New York City, particularly in Brooklyn, where repeatedly the anti-Semitic violent attacks have been perpetrated by young black men. And again, the the organizations, the so-called anti-racist organizations, the so-called anti-Semitism anti uh, watchdog anti groups. Yeah. Yes, all those are pretty mum over and over. And, you know, I, I was... I'm not comparing what happened with the grooming gangs to these incidents. They're they're different. The dynamics and all that are different. What then? What is similar is that a sort of a liberal um, fear of talking about the facts and the truth. And what happens is that you know this is not just a matter of semantics. It's actually about people, communities who are victimized and often victimized in deadly ways. And, um, you know, how this connects to all my work is that um, I've been, I don't know if I'm on the spectrum autistically or anything, but I, I don't really hold back on talking about inconvenient truths. And so that was part of the reason that led me to investigate more about Antifa going back years now, at the end of 2016, when Trump was elected or was announced to be the, the uh, winner against uh, Hillary Clinton, it was in my city of Portland, Oregon, that there were three days of violent riots. In one of those nights, a million dollars of damage was done to one small part of the city. And I, at that time, I was a student journalist with the... Um, Portland State a student newspaper. I was an editor there and I was out on assignment and I just witnessed these mobs of thugs dressed head to toe in black uh, with masks and carrying bats and other weapons and they were destroying the place and starting fires. And I remember the next day in the following 72 hours when I opened up the local press, which I trusted at that time, these were, it was described as basically unruly protests of people who were very fearful of now fascism in America. 
And I just, I, for me, I, I didn't see the connection between acts of violence against small businesses and cause, like what that had to do with, uh, you know, manifesting a fear of a democratic um, election. And so I just continued and I wanted to know more about who are these people behind these um, black uniforms because they looked extremely organized. They knew what they were doing and they were very quick at getting away. And, and what I did just you continued. observe about the police? They were completely overwhelmed that night and they seemed to have held back quite a bit. I didn't know that actually that would come to be the norm in Portland. Unfortunately, I would come to learn through instances where I was victimized violently in not too far from a law enforcement presence where they wouldn't intervene. And this has become the the, the theme of your work. Obviously. It has. Um, not, not It kind of just fell into my lap. I mean, I was really kind of one of the few dissident voices in Portland. And I was very fortunate that back in 2017 and 2018, I was allowed to write some columns that were published in the Wall Street Journal opinion section where I was describing what was happening in my city and that these were not uh, so-called uh, anti-fascist or anti-racist. These were violent extremists who organized under a banner and organized under a uniform and ideology to carry out violence against anybody who dared to voice any criticism of them. You know, I viewed it as a very totalitarian movement that actually had a stranglehold on the city. And that's what I was actually quite afraid of. I was deeply troubled that the city council, the mayor, all were throwing bones to Antifa by repeating their lies and propaganda at official city hall meetings, repeating it to the press, and the press would repeat it. And it gave this perception to many Portlanders that we don't have a left a left wing violent extremism problem in Portland. The problem is the right. The problem are uh, Trump supporters. The problem is that there's too much freedom of speech that tolerates you know, this, this, and that. And I knew that it was going to boil over into something deadly. And I tried my best to illuminate to the public. At that time, I was doing writings and also videos. Um, that's so kind how of did how you I... get into the Wall Street Journal? One, you know, <clears throat> one minute you're a student editor, and the next minute you're in what has probably become the the actual newspaper of record, although you're on the opinion page. And in fact, I understand that not everyone in the in the in the in the reporting side necessarily appreciated their inviting you over. But how did that even happen? Um, well, I I think there were just people who saw my Twitter and saw that I was doing work that they thought deserved a larger audience. I remember so I, at the time that your Twitter was phenomenally like you you were blowing up on <laughs> Twitter. You 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 were in a, rather methodically and really close to the ground mm -hmm. reporting on what people were getting sort of marginal information about. You were going right into the heart of it and and um confirming that what we thought was happening really was happening. 
Yeah. So, you know, I owe my entire journalism career to those very brave um, handful of editors at publications who gave Andy Ngo uh, a no name, somebody that nobody really had heard of outside of Portland, maybe um, an opportunity to be published in these larger platforms. And I, you know, I try to carry that center that gratitude today when I notice talent among, um, you know, new and emerging independent journalists who, let's say, are just putting things on their social media, but are really putting themselves out on the ground to around the country to document what's happening. And I try my best to um, mentor them when I can and also to help them get published if I can. And um, so I think yeah, you know, I didn't have, um, there's no like initial viral moment for me that just kind of launched me into the, the public. I really had to take it uh, like one step at a time up the ladder. And um, sometimes it still feels a little bit surreal in that what I've been able to accomplish in a relatively short amount of time um, since but 2017, you're... really. Your beat is still really the United States, right? You're reporting from the UK. I'm looking at your Twitter feed and you're writing about uh, the Green Goblin attacks, uh, which because of the, the Jewish holiday, I had actually been lucky enough not to have heard about. Uh, a group of black women in green costumes attacking people on the subway and of course being dumped right back uh, into the street. I don't know if they're guilty. I don't know if they're um, not guilty. This is their lawyer uh, doing what lawyers do, which is protecting his clients. How do you, are you obviously you've got someone helping you out. You, you couldn't have been taking that video yourself. No, I mean, a lot of yeah, one thing I regret is that I'm not able to be on the ground anymore, but it wouldn't really matter if I was um, in the U.S. or not, because the far left have made it impossible for me to record. And it doesn't matter if I sh hide or show my face, actually. Um, actually, often, if you show up entirely with a, in a disguise where your face is covered, that actually can make people much more suspicious of you if you're coming there with the camera. So um, my... also, there, are there are fewer strangers, Asian men who are not you, being beaten up now by people who think that they are you because the word is out that you're not, you're not around anymore. Yeah. But even with that, I mean, there was an instance with a, uh, a left-wing journalist named, uh, um, uh, Thor Benson, who a number of months ago earlier this year had made the false accusation that he confronted me at a bar in New Orleans. I wasn't there. I wasn't even in the U S at that time. Um, but nonetheless, um, I, I mean, it's emblematic of, it, you know, similar things have happened, unfortunately, to other people who have been mistaken for being mean. And, and actually, uh, thank goodness, none of them were assaulted. I mean, it really easily could have happened. Some of these people who are so, um, have such a strong hatred against me that they they would actually not think twice about just going in and sucker, sucker punching somebody that they actually thought um, was me, but, you know, even with me not being on the ground, like before, yes, it makes the work extremely challenging, but I've, I've just had to grow my skill set. That means that I've had to rely a lot more on different sources. I have to have stringers. 
Um, and I have to just tap into the networks that I've built before. And, you know, and primarily my type of reporting is not, it has moved away from video now for a couple of years because of how I've been so viciously targeted for getting video on the ground. So I do writing and there's a lot of investigative work that can be done um, without putting oneself in harm's way on the ground in the middle of various direct actions. And of course, you wrote an entire book on um, Antifa, or as, as you pronounce it, probably more accurately, Antifa. You have an, is your website, uh, like, what's the destination? What, what What's the focus of your, like, where do, where do people go if they want to follow you most closely? Is it, is it still Twitter or start out on, on the website and take it from there? Uh, do you have a, a my website is my website anti-ngo.com is really the place that kind of is a, the trunk of the tree if you will and then it'll, from there you can go f find everything else so the page that you have pulled up right there though is uh, is my link tree which is somewhat similar to my website it just has all the links together in one place um i I'm an independent journalist primarily. I do have an affiliation um, with uh, the Post Millennial as an editor at large, but I still do freelance writing and writing um, blogging on my Patreon and my locals. Um, so for me to continue doing my work, I depend on people to uh, pledge support, either through locals or Patreon or Subscribestar. And, um, you know, if, if anybody who's listening has done freelance journalism, they would know that the, the pay is not very good. And, um, you know, part of that is because, well, nobody really wants to pay for news, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I anything. Think, you and I can think how annoying it is. You want to read a, a story that has an interesting headline and you hit a paywall. Well, you know, how many people are going to actually subscribe on that spot and pay? Very, very few. Most people would just close out close that tab and move on. Um, I, my work is not behind any paywalls because um, I think it's, it's important that the news gets out there. Um, you know, and then the unfortunate flip side is then, you know, a lot of things I just, there's not really a way for me to monetize, but, you know, I didn't go into this type of work to become wealthy. You don't really, if you are um, a serious journalist. Um, so, um, yeah, I depend on crowdfunding to to keep things going. Um, a moment ago, you talked about my book. That was probably that is uh, to date my the biggest project of my life. Unmasked inside Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy came out at the beginning of uh, 2021, and then it was updated in paperback release earlier this year. And it it details. Um, particularly with Portland as a case study on what happened that allowed this movement to cause as much violence as they did with impunity in 2020. And it goes into the history as well of Antifa in um, uh, just prior to the Second World War and after and how they are, it's, it's a very, it's a dangerous movement, but not maybe not in the traditional way that people kind of understand danger. You know, we the FBI 
and other federal agencies and politicians will talk about the dangers of the far right in America. And they can point to neo-Nazi groups that have killed people, for example. The, the number of killings and deaths related to the far right is actually very small. Um, but to measure the lethal, the danger of any extremist ideological political movement just by lethality is, I think, um, missing the entire picture. Um, the danger of Antifa, yes, is there violence, part of it. You know, I'm speaking as a, a living example of somebody who survived that. There have been somebody else who didn't survive that in Portland, Aaron Danielson, who was a Trump supporter who was shot dead by uh, a Antifa member who left behind a manifesto on, an, on his Instagram. I, I write about this in, in my book. And the quote from that is, I am 100% Antifa. Um, so yes, it is deadly. You know, they carry deadly weapons that people may not even perceive to be deadly. Like who, who would have thought that freezing dozens and dozens or hundreds of water bottles to be hard as rocks and using that to aim at people's heads to throw at the riots in 2020 or attaching a small blade to an end of their umbrella and using that as a extended bladed weapon uh, or making homemade explosive devices, Molotov cocktails, and throwing it at buildings that are occupied by people. They do all of that. That's been captured on ca on video. I've recorded it myself and I witnessed it myself. But I say like the real danger of Antifa is it's not only these instances of violence, which in the grand scheme of things is actually just one small part. It's the fact that their messaging and propaganda is mainstream to a certain degree within the Democrat party and mainstream left-wing politicians and city councils and district attorneys across the United States. And so you have places where ostensibly you have the courts, you have judges, you have um, law enforcement, but really it's it's the tyranny is, is of the anarchy in the sense that you have sort of a shell of these institutions that represent the rule of law, but they are extremely compromised. And so you can have, for example, far less violent extremists in Portland or Seattle carrying out violence um, with a feeling of impunity. Whereas if there were any right-wing demonstration, they would, those people when they, let's say, defend themselves from violence by Antifa, they are charged with crimes and prosecuted successfully. They, the jury pool is pulled from uh, a certain jurisdiction where the people have been systematically brainwashed by the press and the politicians. So, yeah, if you are a victim of Antifa violence in Portland and uh, like, good luck getting justice. <laughs> you know, I'm raising my hand. I'm speaking. I've been victimized repeatedly there. Good luck. Um, it's it's really horrific, actually. I think I was really naive about um, the rule of law in America. I think maybe because um, my, my parents are immigrants and we don't, you know, my family doesn't lineage, doesn't have deep roots in the United States. So I had an idealized sort of American exceptionalist view of um, rights and liberty in America. And I just, I didn't realize that these systems so incredible as they are, um, I'll actually have a lot of vulnerabilities that have been very intelligently exploited by radical ideologues.
Well, I mean, as someone who has been practicing law for over 30 years, I never thought I would see the manipulation of the criminal justice system as well as the civil justice system. And those systems are parallel. They're not entirely unrelated. Um, but the the comfort with which politics has found a place at the table uh, or on the bench in the most and and also in the prosecutor's offices. I mean, we could do an entire episode on that, and mm-hmm. it's 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 extremely depressing. The entire the the very concept that it is in any way within the bailiwick of a prosecutor to decide which parts of the criminal code or even which suspects by class he or she will not prosecute is astonishing. There's no legal basis for it whatsoever, but it's been accepted almost universally. The only question is, are they overdoing it? Are they, is the effect bad? But no one questions except Ron DeSantis, who fired someone for for saying it and was upheld by the courts of Florida. No one seems to to even question. Now, this goes to your point about how the ideology of Antifa has found its way into the political mainstream of the left. These unbelievable propositions. Yes. Um, Going back to the prosecutors in Portland in 2020, August, which was the height of the nightly riots that began after George Floyd died. August is when Mike Schmidt uh, took office. He went in um, early because uh, the predecessor left office early. And immediately within days, uh, really hours after taking office officially, uh, the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office released a document detailing whole sets of crimes that are related to the riots that they won't prosecute. Things such as resisting arrest, as escaping, as assisting people in uh, so-called de-arresting their comrades. And there's a whole list of all these other crimes. And so immediately what, what happened um, for months on end is that when the Portland police did make arrests, and they made about a thousand arrests, immediately it's just a matter of policy. These cases, as soon as it went, um, you know, within hours to review for by the DA's office, it was um, no complaint, which is just another way of saying that it was dropped. And so now if the, have- if the Proud Boys, the, the, the bet noir of, in other words, when, when in doubt, blame the, the Proud Boys for whatever, you know, it, what ails you. If the Proud Boys came into a, Portland and started rioting and started committing all these crimes, is there any chance whatsoever that that policy would be rolled out to, to you know, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate. You don't really know, but you and I both know the answer to that question. Right. It would, the full way of the state would go down. And in fact, and not only the state, right. If, if they, if they did what they're doing for Antifa to, for the proud boys, the justice department would be showing up 
and saying this is a major civil rights violation. Guess whose Justice Department didn't do anything? I don't have to tell you to guess. This was this was 2021, right? 2020. 2020. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was president. Oh, no, 20, yes. Donald Trump was president. Yes. Nothing. Nothing from Bob. I mean, nothing or, or not enough? Or was it, did, did, did we all miss it? Uh, it didn't happen. There was actually, I mean, there were some statements from William Barr, but in terms of uh, decisive action, that did not happen. Um, although I wonder, actually, even if the DOJ was to have responded to the um, the federal crimes that were being committed uh, in Portland in the course of these riots, I mean, the local, um, I mean, the ACLU and all, all those other organizations, as well as the local state, would have fought it every step of the way. In fact, oh, of when federal law enforcement agencies sent a relatively small number of officers to protect federal property in Portland that the rioters were trying to burn down, particularly the U.S. federal courthouse in downtown. That was in July of 2020. Every night, they were trying to storm the building and set it on fire. And so multiple barricades were set up, barricades were torn down, ripped apart, more reinforced ones were put up. So office, federal officers were sent in, and the response from Portland was actually to uh, restrict, ban Portland police from cooperating in, or communicating with federal law enforcement. So you had what was happening was a staging area that was on city property just feet away from the courthouse, this park. That was a staging area for the riots they had there. That's where the food was distributed, the camps and tents were, where the weapons were distributed. They would go from there, walk a few feet over, and attack the federal courthouse every night. And and the mayor and the the Oregon governor as well, all Democrats, referred to these federal officers as an occupying force. Uh, Trump's Gestapo, they even said. They made false accusations, lies, that the federal officers were disappearing people Um, when these are all lies, I mean, some of the tactics that the federal law enforcement used to arrest, make some arrests was actually brilliant. You know, what do you do when you have in the middle of, of, uh, you identify a suspect who's in a crowd of thousands of people, uh, they kept an eye on that person until eventually that person left the riot, made, walked a couple blocks away. And then they, they moved in, in their vehicle and made the arrest. And the ACLU and all these other organizations filed lawsuits. Some of these lawsuits are still ongoing, by the way. Um, these uh, um, these people who are suspects are, you know, wanting a payout, and I suspect they will get it. Um, so yeah, the so-called civil rights organizations also sued uh, in numerous. I I think there were more than a dozen lawsuits at a time against the Portland police for using tear gas. Um, to help um, clear the rioters who had ignored probably two dozen commands to leave an area. And a lot of these people were so-called journalists, fake journalists, who believed that they had a right to ignore lawful orders. 
you know, if they ignore the orders, they take a certain risk that they'll get arrested. And some of them did. And the suing in the city just settles. You know, it's taxpayer money. It's uh, it's a racket in a way, in my view. But I mean, the consequences from the, the riots more than two years ago now are still being felt today because um, city council voted to defund the Portland police by many millions. Um, that funding has since been restored, but the number of officers is still in a historic short uh, shortfall. Officers quit. They went to other police departments. They resigned. They took early retirement. And the Portland police are just not able to get recruits, enough recruits to replace the ones that are lost. So now you have um, still historic uh, surge in violent criminality in Portland, uh, in homicides in 2021, a year after 2020, we had the highest number of homicides in the city's history surpassed our previous record from a number of decades ago. Um, and where Portland is right now, speaking to you today, is on track to beat last year's historic record. So if you call police and you're experiencing really a life or death situation, it can take up to 20 minutes for police to respond. If you're experiencing a serious other issue, let's say a burglary or something, it could take even way longer for police to respond. So, and on top of that, you have the homeless encampments that are growing in the city and all these residential areas and the ground is just littered with hypodermic needles it's everywhere um killings have happened stabbings in in and around these homeless areas and it's all tied to this project of anarcho tyranny from the far left in the city andy you wanted to talk about something again going back to the parallel track we've been talking about criminal law you wanted to talk about the effect of lawfare on your work and how you, to some extent, your work has been necessitated by the effects of lawfare. Yeah, I think, you know, it would be remiss on my part if we didn't talk about some of the legal stuff, given the fact that you are an attorney and there are lots of um, crap takes on social media when everybody thinks that they, you know, can play lawyer for a, a tweet and all that. But yes, one of the other things about the far left in Portland and Antifa is they use lawfare. Um, in fact, there are a number of attorneys who are part of the National Lawyers Guild. That's a far left um, anarchist communist legal organization networks across the United States that provide bail fund for far left criminal suspects uh, and pro bono legal aid or low bono. And the, this was the main legal organization that provided help to those who, the very few who were prosecuted in Portland. Um, what happened with me is that uh, in, in late 2021, I found out when the press reached out to me that about a federal civil lawsuit filed against me by uh, these two women whose names I recognize right away because of my Antifa coverage in Portland. And they filed a federal um, copyright complaint, civil claim, seeking apparently hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I, I was really, in, in the crux of their claim is that I had violated their copyright when I did a retweet of their video of two tweets on Twitter. 
And um, as much as I've been targeted with violence and all that, that was the first time I was a victim of lawfare. And, you know, you can imagine how distressful that is for somebody who's hasn't gone through that experience. In many ways, I, I'm quite naive in a lot of things. But this was, it was truly shocking. It was frivolous, obviously, on the face of it. But it was meant it, to chill my, um, my ability to use the built-in functions of Twitter. You know, because I, I wasn't able to get up close footage from many of these riots because obviously they would have killed me. So what I did was, and I ended up retweeting some of the videos that some of the Antifa videographers did from within. These weren't the best videos. You know, obviously they're not going to show the faces of the comrades, not going to reveal any other information that a real journalist would. But nonetheless, there were video and it's contemporaneous. In taking place in, in the context of a logic a riot. And so what I did was I would uh, retweet their videos and then I was hit with this lawsuit. And um, I'm still, uh, I'm very thankful for, 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 for your role um, as, as part of my counsel, Ron, in dealing with that. I mean, in the case of withdrawn, they withdrew it within, I think, eight or nine days. But those in those eight or nine days, it was extremely, yeah, this is the um, copyright owner, Ant Tifa. Was this the same incident? No, this is another one. So this is this runs in parallel to what I'm talking about. Like, so these copyright complaints through Twitter was a, a actually organized campaign um, by Antifa to try to get me banned because they hated that I was bringing exposure to them to an audience of hundreds of thousands. So they would file these fake copyright complaints through Twitter and Twitter's response immediately is just a matter of their policies is the content will be withdrawn until I submit my own forms and fill out, provide information stating uh, for the record that uh, I do have a, a right to use these uh, videos. So it's not a violation of DM DMCA to use a built-in Twitter function, like retweeting somebody's uh, video from their account. But nonetheless, they would file these claims. And the point was to get to rack up enough of these um, strikes on my account to get me banned. But I had uh, this was, you know, it was everything. Every time I was having to deal with that BS deal with the frivolous lawsuit, it was time taken away from my journalism, which is another, you know, <laughs> strategy of there to make me less effective, to tie me up and all these other distractions. Um, and that's, you know, it's part of the, they have so many, because the networks are quite large, they're able to actually crowdsource the harassment to quite large numbers of people. And, um, yeah, it's people buckle under that type of pressure. They really do. It's, um, I've developed a thicker skin, but I'm still quite a sensitive person when I receive when I'm the victim of um, digital death threats and other forms of malicious communications, it gets to me, you know, and um, it's, Do you think you'll have to, you think you'll ever be able to live in America again? I don't know. It's the other thing about the U S is it's really, um, whenever I'm back there, it's, it's, it's really, it, it makes me sad, actually. I think the state of polarization in the U.S. is it's really distressing to me. It's 
I was there in the summer around all the Roe v. Wade stuff, and I was just, you know, seeing every night how these pregnancy resource centers were being targeted by organized groups um, that were allied with Antifa. Jane's Revenge is one of them, carrying out night after night targeting churches and pregnancy resource centers with impunity. And it's just, you know, there's always something going on in the U.S. where you just see the the authorities that are meant to investigate these robustly are not doing it and it it leaves one with sort of a feeling my feeling that um left-wing political extremism criminal acts is is condoned and um i think freedom of expression is really under threat in America, I think the, the main chilling effect, I would say, of Antifa in Portland, in addition to all the issues I talked about with surging criminality and homicides, is that it's had a very effective, um, it's, it's been effective in silencing people. Um, you cannot have a conservative pro-Trump event in Portland. You cannot have even an event that's critical of the most radical elements of the trans ideology in Portland without violence being brought on you and with and local law enforcement will not respond to help either. I can speak from firsthand experience. They've even, Portland police have said on record, we won't be anybody's private security. So, you know, you can have people who show up with weapons, who threaten people in public, who are carrying out First Amendment activities and you're left entirely helpless. And it's not just Portland that's like that. They're, these are, this is a recurring, serious problem you see in blue, Democrat-run urban areas where, which includes every just about every college campus as well. Yes, that was canary in the coal mine. That I don't know if I would say it was ignored by the. It wasn't ignored by the right, but it was. They focus on the wrong aspect of it. They focus on it in, so going back to 2015, 16, 17, it was more about mockery of these people as childlike, immature, unable to control their emotions. And the right was interested in the videos that showed these freakouts and meltdowns without seriously thinking about, okay, these people are now the upcoming generation of those who enter civil society and all these other institutions and they're taking this they're being tolerated and they're being rewarded by yes. the adults in the room. Exactly. So I, yes, I think there was a failure in response from the right. Um, and now, you know, those people have a certain ideological dominance in many urban areas in America. You know, they're helped along by certain e events, current events that they use and exploit, like the death of George Floyd and others. But these are just these are power grabs. And so there's always going to be another story that can be exploited in the press, and they will, um, to legitimize um, their hold on power. And I'm not, yeah. So all of that, it's it's very painful when I am within the US and observing that. And so there's a certain, that pain still is still there when I'm abroad, but I think when I'm observing from outside, there's a certain, um, that pain is e easier for me to process. I want to make sure that people who are watching know where to go. 
as I I did mention it before, um, this is the website. I'm going to throw it up there again. This is the website, Andy. No dash. You got a hyphen in there. Mm-hmm. I know the feeling, Coleman hyphen nation. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, but this is this is the source. This is where you go if you want to donate. There's plenty of opportunities to support Andy through locals, Patreon, Patreon, subscribe star. And I urge people who uh, appreciate the work that he's done to do so. Uh, of course, there is the the lawsuit, which is still ongoing. Uh, um, my friend and partner, uh, not Tucker Carlson, but uh, Harmy Dillon, uh, leading the way there. You being on the West Coast, or the action being on the West Coast, so you can donate through uh, the LibertyCenter.org, which is LibertyCenter.org. The, uh, my good friends and for whom I've done much work for. And now. Yeah. I've done the just... pitch, <laughs> I've done the push. I've done the schmear. You can ask me the question. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, for letting your audience know where they can go. If they want to read my journalism or watch the videos or support me, um, that lawsuit, um, just explaining that a little bit more as a civil case against people that I've been able to identify as assailants in um, several attacks against me stemming from going as far back as 2019. So that's still ongoing. Um, it's, and it, it's an expensive process as all lawsuits are. So any support is is really appreciated. Um, yeah, my, my, um, my question for you is just, um, I'm sure you see on Twitter all the time when people who let's say are the victim of a smear campaign or disinformation a lot of responses from twitter users is sue them you know sue cnn sue new york times sue this sue that what's what do you think is the biggest misconception about that sort of uh response that you see from people on the right who understandably are upset when somebody they see is let's say victimized by the press and then just say, well, here's a lawyer, you know, reach out to yes, them and sue. I'm tagged all the time. I'm yeah. tagged all the time. Here, Ron Coleman, here's a case of you. First of all, I I try not to dive into someone's DMs and say, hey, someone said I should be your lawyer. That's not considered to be good form. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the misconception that people are under, as you know, is that if you're a public figure, that you've got almost any chance of surviving a motion to dismiss for defamation, almost regardless of what's said about you. The the Times versus Sullivan decision, which created the actual malice standard that everyone's familiar with, um, was 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 already bad enough. But what we have consistently seen is that courts, and even in the case of some states, such as New York, legislatures have really been, as the left has taken over control Mm. of communications, of the press, of the media, they've become more hostile than ever to the tort of defamation. 
So in New York, they passed this law, making it almost impossible to maintain a defamation action unless you've got your evidence of actual malice before the lawsuit begins, which is unlike almost any other cause of action. Um, so what courts have basically consistently said is that calling somebody a racist or an extremist or a white supremacist, and both you and I have been called white supremacists, neither one of us is white in whatever the neither one of us would be welcome at a white supremacist uh you know or in a white supremacist organization but whatever that means these are expressions of opinion say the courts that has almost universally been determined to be the law in the united states and you know i believe me i could talk about that for half an hour but that's the brick wall. You can call someone an extremist. You can call a group extremists. You can call them just about anything. The only thing you can't claim is that they did something very specific, that they that they participated in or did a certain act, which in and of itself would be defamatory if true. Um, now, there's very little that's even a defamatory act anymore other than being a white supremacist or being a racist. It used to be, for example, that calling somebody, um, calling a woman, uh, saying that, that, that a woman was not a ch chaste was defamation per se. Well, what a ridiculous concept that is in the year 2022. In fact, what could be more humiliating than accusing someone of being chased? Um, calling someone a child molester or a pedophile. Well, now we just have, we've changed the names for that conduct. Um, so, so the entire social background for what defamation means and what can be considered defamatory um, has has shifted. Judges have have really. You now really have an entire generation of judges who've come up in a time when defamation was really a disfavored cause of action. So your point is well taken. You know, the point you made by asking your question, which is something lawyers do, of course, which is, Ron, aren't people unduly confident in what can be done through a lawsuit? The answer is yes. And just to give you an example of another way that courts deal with lawsuits that they don't like, we're coming up on now um, four years since I sued the Southern Poverty Law Center, a hate group, on behalf of Gavin McInnes for defamation. Not because they called him this, you know, a bad name, but because they accused him of things he didn't do. The case was so solid that, well, I don't want to say it's a cause and effect relationship, but I will say that there's been no ruling on the motion for over three years now. Judges have this power, and this is one of the, one of the, you know, Andy, our system has always been premised on a certain amount of trust. We're going to make federal 
judges a lifetime appointment because we trust that the right people will be confirmed, will be nominated, will be confirmed, and that they will do their duty. That trust is not merited anymore. Mm. So we have judicial, we have it, we have a judicial system. Uh, and again, we we say that prosecutors have discretion about whom to uh, whom to uh, prosecute. Why? Because we trust that somebody in public service who chooses to become a prosecutor know, understands what his duty is, and that if he doesn't, we trust. Well, you you can't make these things happen, and this was actually part of our common law heritage that we shared with the with with with, with the UK. Somehow they've managed to, as you have just explained at the beginning of our of our discussion, which must come to an end because we're sure we've lost a lot of people by now. Uh, but somehow the UK has managed to maintain, despite many challenges and 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 a lot of silly stuff. I mean, they do have police monitoring social media in the UK, something which we don't quite have now. We just have, we have we have government doing it, not actually police doing it, but we have government doing it and telling social media whom to censor, which is not as bad as being arrested. And I had a great interview with um, Count Dankula, right? right? So, you know, we had we had Count Dankula on the show. I mean, that we don't have in America. But we do have the, the trust is no longer deserved. The system relies on trust. And, you know, Andy, you don't have to be across the ocean Trust me, I'm just looking out, you know, over my shoulder here, uh, just in, over New York Harbor. It's bad times here. It's bad times. And whatever happens in this coming election may help, may slow down the uh, the train, or it might, or it may not. You know, uh, not a very, you know, uplifting message, but. You're the guy who has, in so many ways, lived so much of this dysfunction, and really, ha you know, really paid a price that, like many of our clients, you know, we very rarely have clients of the firm. Um, he didn't really talk about your case in any kind of detail, uh, for you know, for that reason, uh, your your current case. Uh, I virtually never have anyone on the show, but you and I predate the client relationship and uh i'm really glad you came on thank you so much hey thank you for listening to the coleman nation podcast don't forget to subscribe on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app if you like the show please rate it five stars and leave a review for more information please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com that's coleman-nation.com or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.